0: Hey, it's Doug, and welcome back to the Crew Japan podcast, a podcast where we take you on audio journeys through Japanese culture. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're joined by Dr. Hiromu Nagahara, Associate Professor of History at MIT, as we take a deep dive into the history behind the imperial family, the Chrysanthemum Throne. This is actually going to be a two-part episode. So today is part one, where we are going to talk about quite a few things, but just to highlight a few of those for you on this episode... Dr. Nagahara shares with us his background.
1: Once I went outside of Japan, that was a moment when I began to turn back towards Japan and thinking about uh, my own family's history, whether it's the history of that adventurous great-grandfather or or the side of the family who experienced one of the sort of you know profound tragedies in modern Japanese history.
0: Explain the name Chrysanthemum Throne and where it comes from.
1: That's because when the first... Western visitors to Japan encountered, you know, its political system Um, in the Meiji era in the 19th century, uh, you know, they quickly realized that, oh, this chrysanthemum, golden chrysanthemum seems to be the symbol, right, of of the royal family.
0: And teaches us what makes the Japanese imperial family distinct.
1: Royal household in in at least three ways that that comes to mind. One is that uh, the Japanese emperor does not have the sovereignty.
0: Let's dive on in. all right so we are here today we have nigel hey nigel how you doing i'm doing good as always how about you Nah, you know can't complain just you know getting getting by uh and we have a very special guest with us today um an associate professor at mit dr hiromu nagahara who also actually wrote a book called tokyo boogie woogie too i wanted to make sure we mentioned that too we uh Something we, we found out about when we were doing some research and trying to find, looking around for guests, and we thought that was really interesting. I think Nigel's actually going to try to pick up a copy to
1: yeah, check out. Is absolutely. That, that, it piqued his interest. So, first of all, how are you doing? Fine, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, I, I suspect it's a lot colder here in Boston than it is in uh, New Orleans. <laughs> it is a It is today when we're recording, it's December
0: 10th. And it is a balmy 78 degrees outside. Oh, my goodness.
2: (laughs) Like 120% humidity. Yeah, I was going to say with a lot of humidity as well. Yeah.
1: (laughs) We had our first uh, real snow covering yesterday. Oh, yeah. Two nights ago. Uh, Everything was covered in snow when we woke up. And my seven-year-old and four-year-old daughters were absolutely delighted. uh, Wow. Wow. Personally. personally i think i would enjoy the new orleans weather more
2: your your seven-year-old and four-year daughters have probably seen more snow than i have in my entire life
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah no we're we're looking ahead uh but not necessarily forward to more snow uh, in the next couple months i gotcha
0: see like kids really like I, i remember as a kid i always wanted to see and play and snow and all that stuff but then i started doing some work um, for a hospital in Minnesota a few years Ooh. back and it required a lot of traveling. And in the summer, it was great escaping some of the heat and humidity of new Orleans during the summer, but in the winters, oh my goodness, like negative 15 degrees, like wind chill and snow and ice. I can't tell you how many, I can't count how many times I slipped just cause I'm not used to it, you know? So <laughs> a nice Southern boy over up in Minnesota, slipping around on ice and spilling
1: yeah, his no, that, coffee that's everywhere. A- Different kind of cold there too. My wife is from the Twin Cities, and oh yeah, uh yeah. Temperature wise, it's even colder there. So it's a pretty some pretty intense stuff.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. It gets it gets pretty wild. Um, but now that since we're kind of talking about New Orleans a little bit, uh, and before we jump into like int- deeper introductions and more on the topic for today's conversation, one thing we ask a lot of our guests, um, when they come onto the podcast, is if they have a connection to New Orleans you know, if you've been before, or, you know, if you have, what's your fondest or funniest or most unique memory? And if you haven't, what's the first thing you think of when you hear New Orleans?
1: Yeah, so uh, I've both had the pleasure of, and I'm also sad to say that I've only been to New Orleans once uh, for an academic conference, I think more than seven years ago. Uh, And it was lovely, you know, it's always been a city that I've been interested in, um, you know, I'm a historian of Japan but I'm you know interested in history of the, of the world including America and um obviously uh as you both very well know New Orleans has a really unique mix of a lot of heritage and culture and um you know different people and histories complicated histories and and, and um such so you know for for a historian for a, a lover of music and also spicy food uh you know New Orleans has always been on my radar and so Um, I think when I was there, I got to visit, I think, a restaurant called uh, Cochon, Uh, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally, I think it's kind of a French style, you know, literally meaning pig and pork. And Mm -hmm. uh, I grew up eating pork in Japan. Love it. Uh, (laughs) And so uh, (laughs) I'm really looking forward to, you know, going back, uh, hopefully before too long. Yeah, well,
0: well, you're more than welcome to reach out when you do. We'll take you out for some coffee and beignets. Awesome, and, uh,
2: <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, what yeah. was the uh, academic conference connected to one of the the major like universities in New uh, Orleans?
1: No, it was actually the uh, the annual conference, I think, of the American Historical Association. Um, oh, So nice. it happened at I think one of those really big hotels right by the you know the French Quarter. Yeah. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So it, the problem with those conferences are that you usually end up spending a lot of times inside a hotel room. In small, ah. you know, seminar rooms instead of hanging outside. So, uh, next time I hope to do more of hanging outside than yeah. staying inside the hotel.
0: So those conferences. I feel like they a lot of places pick New Orleans because of of the opportunity because people want to go there, so they know that they'll have a good turnout. But then you're stuck inside. <laughs> yeah, like exactly. Exactly. Of the day. Once
1: there, <laughs> once you're there, you're not. You know, you can't go inside. <laughs> so it's a trap. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, Wow. And just curious, what what season was it? Was it during
1: the summer or winter or fall? Do you remember? Uh, It it was, I think it was January. Okay. Um, That's usually when AHA conferences happen. So, Um, you know, again, coming from Boston, it still felt plenty nice. It was a nice break, right?
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's great. That's great. Yeah. In the summer, you definitely would probably rather be in Boston. I'll I'll promise you that. Uh, Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I think actually the other thing that maybe, you know, people have talked about sort of the southern parts of the United States being more humid and hot and and so forth. But, you know, someone who grew up in Tokyo, you know, during July and August, which it's... uh, Maybe it's not quite New Orleans level, but it gets it's pretty hot and humid. And um, actually, there's a part of me that misses that uh, when I'm here in Boston for the summer. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely.
2: So, for our listeners who may not be familiar with with you and your background, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure, absolutely. So, uh, I I was born and raised in Japan. Uh, I grew up mostly in uh, Kanagawa Prefecture, which is just south of Tokyo. It's basically part of the greater Tokyo region. Um, And, you know, I ended up ultimately coming to America, I think uh, mainly because my education was basically in English from first grade on. My parents, for various complicated, quirky reasons, uh, decided to send me to an international school uh, from first grade on. Um, You know, they're both Japanese. We spoke Japanese at home. But basically, I commuted from that Japanese language speaking household to an english language sort of educational um uh atmosphere basically from first grade through the end of high school um and then i came over to the states and um traveled a bit but then you know ended up uh staying here for grad school got married uh and now you know i work in, live and work in boston um I do have some Japanese American um, backgrounds. So I think my great grandfather on my mom's side uh, actually, I think he was like a teenager in the 1890s. And the story he tells is that he wanted to become a businessman for his country. And, you know, this is the Meiji era when Japan is industrializing. There was, it was a period where there were these young entrepreneurial people. And so, at least again, as he tells it, he snuck on a steamship that sailed out of Yokohama, wow. That's great. just south of Tokyo, uh, got across the Pacific, uh, got caught by, by the crew on the ship who you know told them that they were going to take him back to Japan. But then somehow, again, as he tells it, uh, escaped out of the boat in San Francisco, ended up in New York, uh, and he eventually um, became not a businessman, but a Presbyterian minister uh, <laughs> in, in Manhattan. Um, so, you know, uh, he's, he's buried in Brooklyn and, you know, because of that connection, actually, I do have some sort of, uh, uh, some Japanese American relatives, my part of the family came back to Japan right before, uh, World War II, um, and so forth, but all that to say some sort of trans-specific, uh, family background. And I think, uh, maybe part of that, I, you know, I think in college, I became interested in Japanese history, uh. In a way, in ways that I wasn't before. I think when I lived in Japan, I think once you go out of Japan, there was a part of me that became, I think, sort of fascinated in a new way. And uh, and so, you know, I ended up doing graduate work and PhD in Japanese history. Uh, wrote my first book, as you said, on uh, pop music in Japan, and um, mainly because I think I'm interested, ultimately, as a historian, in uh, the intersection of politics and culture throughout modern Japanese history. So, uh, right now I'm working on a second book, uh, which will hopefully be about how uh, you know Japan's elites, especially in the decades before the Second World War, uh, became cosmopolitans, um, including some members of the imperial family who you know in the 1920s, 30s, were gallivanting in Paris, getting in car accidents in Normandy, uh, and getting into other shenanigans and so forth. So uh as part of that, I've also begun some research into uh the history of members of the Imperial household, um, you know, going overseas, Europe, America, uh, and so forth. Oh that's my great. gosh. I cannot wait to read that book. <laughs> that
2: is that's like right up <laughs> my alley right there. So and, and same with your first book. Perfect. I I can't wait. Do you have a drop date for the new book?
1: No, no, I, I gotta finish research and writing for it. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay. 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 I thought you were a little bit, I thought you were closer I, to the public, I hope,
1: I hope date. I hope so. But no, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's uh, ongoing. <laughs>
0: it sounds like a lot of
1: fun though. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so it sounds like when you first came to the U S you weren't exactly set on becoming a, a historian. And so through the through the researching your Japanese American roots, are you saying that is what sparked that?
1: So I was actually set on becoming a historian. I love, I've always loved history. Oh, okay. Um, But I think actually, you know, again, as I, when I was growing up in Japan, I was more fascinated by places that were quote unquote, more exotic for me. Uh, and I think actually okay. my first love, first love, as it were in history was medieval European history you know in some Uh, sense as far away as it can get from Japan yeah um and so I thought well maybe you know I'll study some kind of European history but I think and the other part was I think Japanese history was both familiar and parts of my family history was I think also a bit too intense so uh, on my father's side my grandfather is actually the survi- a survivor of the atomic bombing of hiroshima wow uh and he lost you know his parents and some of his siblings in that uh and he never talked about it himself too much perhaps understandably um uh, but his brother uh eventually became after the war became a professor of american literature uh in kyoto and he kind of became a family historian who wrote out the story of the family's experience um you know and so i grew up you know being somewhat familiar with that story uh, but i think yeah once i started sort of once i went outside of, the, of japan um and you know even as my sort of interest in all kinds of history grew i think that that was a moment when i began to turn back towards japan and thinking about uh my own family's history whether it's the history of that adventurous great grandfather or or the side of the family who, uh, you know, had one experience, one of the sort of, uh, uh, you know, profound tragedies in modern Japanese history. Uh, and so I think between those things and between my own experience, I think, of being a Japanese overseas, um, and, you know, I think that's also part of why I'm doing the project that I'm doing now. I think I became more interested in in the Japan's place in the world uh you know across history.
2: Wow. Wow. You know, that's that's absolutely fascinating. And um it, it kind of reminds me, uh I had the, the chance to study abroad in Kyoto uh back in twenty sixteen um at Doshisha University. Is that where your oh, yeah, your uh, uh ancestor taught or no? Uh
1: no so my great so that's my great uncle. He taught at Itsmeekang. Ah okay uh, Yeah, familiar
2: with it, yes, yes. Yeah, no. another
1: private university.
2: Right, right. Um and I always say about that experience, you know, I went to Japan and studied there, but ended up learning much more about America than I did Japan. You know, it's it's, it's something about getting outside of your own country and taking a a look back. You know, it it sparks different things in your head. And, you know, yeah, you look in the mirror and you can kind
0: of see. Oh, that's how people see us. <laughs> yeah, because you don't really, especially if you live in a bubble and a lot of Americans do where they don't really get out of the US. Sure, sure yeah. Um, you know, you don't realize the perception. You may hear it, but you don't realize, truly realize until you actually step out and see how people perceive you as an American before they even know who you are.
1: Yeah, anyway, at least for me, I think there's also the part parts of Japan that I uh, grew up kind of taking for granted. Um, you know, I think... And, you know, when you're you're a kid growing up, you're kind of busy in your own world. And um, I think it was really only once I started researching Japanese history uh, that, you know, I became fascinated in, uh, you know, uh, urban history of places like Tokyo and Kyoto, Um, you know, started walking around and getting to know those places uh, in ways that, I didn't, and I would probably wouldn't have appreciated when I was growing up here. So uh, yeah, I felt, I feel like actually becoming a historian of Japan has actually enabled me to get to know Japan um, in some sense, much more, much more intimately uh, than I would have.
0: Yeah. That's, that's, that's incredible. Uh, and, and I, I, Nigel and I were talking about this earlier, it's like in hindsight, I wish I could have gone back and taken more like Japanese history classes in, in college when I was you know studying. I I was a business major and I had very few electives outside of like, you know, the business degree that I was going for to, to play around with. So in hindsight, I wish I had that opportunity Now, I mean, I could read books, but just with kids and stuff, it's really hard to, <laughs> to find that free time. But, um, but yeah, I just, I, I feel like it's a missed, missed chance. If I can go back and do it again, it would be something I'd try to, try to read more about history and learn more. Cause I feel like it just teaches you a lot about yourself, the world. And, you know, cause history, history re- repeats itself. Right. So <laughs>
1: yeah and you know I think the great thing about history you know is that uh you know when 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 various life events are not preventing you from doing so, there are so many books that you can read you know yeah. there's so many layers and so many um you know years decades uh even centuries of of scholarship um you know um and so there's always more that there's always deeper places that you can dig uh and discover
2: um, yeah yeah absolutely
1: well
0: today we're gonna kind of dig a little bit into the history um behind one of the world's well, not one of the world's oldest hereditary monarchies and that's the imperial house of japan also known as the chrysanthemum throne so let, let's let's start off with like an obvious question um the title chrysanthemum throne where does that originate from? Uh, You know, a lot of people refer to that, but I'm not sure, I I know what a chrysanthemum is, but, you know, why was that picked as the title for the, the, I guess, for the family?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the phrase chrysanthemum throne, I think you hear mostly in English. And I think that's, that's because when the first Western visitors to Japan encountered, um, you know, its political system, um, in the Meiji era, in the 19th century, uh, you know, they quickly realized that, oh, this chrysanthemum, golden chrysanthemum uh, seems to be the symbol, right, of, of the royal family. And uh, it, in fact, it was in that in that period, in the late 19th century, and, you know, in the 1870s especially, when it was actually formally legally uh, established as the imperial seal. Um, and so to some degree, there's actually, a, it's a kind of a modern story, right, where um, yeah. when Japan was encountering and connecting to, uh, you know, European and American imperial powers, it, it, it learned a lot of new things, including the ways in which modern European monarchy worked. Uh, and, and so there was a sense of, oh, you have to have these certain symbols and, and you know, I think foreign diplomatic corps members probably ask them, so what is the, the Royal seal? And, and so they, they established these things. Um, and of course, by then, uh, you know, the chrysanthemum was used, uh, had been used as a symbol of the Imperial household, but it was never um, in some sense officially or legally established before that period. And so it, it had gradually come into use over the centuries um and, you know, if you trace it all the way back, I think chrysanthemum um, was, uh, along with several other, I think, uh, flowers and plants uh, in within Chinese culture, was deemed to be a, uh, a noble flower, um, um, symbolizing the qualities of, you know, an ideal Confucian gentleman. Um, and so it became, I think, gradually a kind of a popular symbol for Japanese aristocrats, in the classical era, you know, in the seventh, eighth, ninth centuries, to use as their own symbols, and the main, the most common, I think, storyline is that in the 13th century, in the 1200s, uh, a particular retired emperor named uh, retired emperor Gotoba uh, was an especially uh, was especially fond of the chrysanthemum symbol and and used it very frequently, and 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 again, then gradually, sort of coalist as one of the main symbols uh, of the imperial household so it is kind of a both a both ancient and a very modern I think history
2: that seems kind of apt for Japan in general as a uh as a description so um, what are some other you know unique distinctions that can be made uh between the Japanese Imperial house and other monarchies around the world uh, aside from being the oldest monarchy
1: yeah you know I think I was thinking this sort of this question of of what makes the Japanese monarchy distinct uh is really tricky because even you know as I mentioned in, in about the chrysanthemum, uh in like many other monarchies and institutions like that world over they uh you know inspire each other mod- you know mimic each other and so in the classical period you know the Japanese monarchy largely emerged uh, you know, drawing heavy inspirations from the Chinese imperial dynasties and, and uh, Chinese culture more broadly, right? Even the Japanese term uh, for the emperor, Tennō, no, uh, is originally a Taoist term. Uh, you know, for a heavily sovereign. So even the even the title is is actually originally Chinese. And of course, as I mentioned, in the modern era, the European monarchy becomes uh you know uh, a a ma- major source of inspiration um i think maybe in its modern incarnation the most useful comparison uh to think about both commonality and differences is actually the british monarchy uh which of course is another venerable uh you know still uh you know in uh, at least among some quarters highly respected uh institution and oftentimes uh, thought of as in similar terms, right? Japan and and Britain, both uh, a parliamentary democracy, uh, both having these uh, constitutional monarchs and so forth. Um, But the Japanese uh, emperor um, and the imperial household more broadly, I think, uh, is different from the British royal household in in at least three ways that that comes to mind. One is that uh, the Japanese emperor is not, or does not have the sovereignty, so you know oftentimes these monarchs are de- described as sovereigns, you know the ultimate source of political authority in the country uh, and in the constitution of eighteen eighty nine the major constitution, the sovereignty explicitly resided in the emperor, right uh he was the one who sort of uh was the ultimate source of political power and legitimacy. But the, uh, the post-war constitution that was created under the Allied occupation explicitly uh, removed the sovereignty from the emperor and placed it in the people, in the citizens of Japan. And so under the current constitution, it's not even clear whether the emperor is the head of state or not. Uh, the emperor, you know, according to the constitution, is a symbol of national unity. There are no other monarchies that describe the emperor in that way. Uh, Although, you know, functionally, right? Functionally, (laughs) maybe Queen Elizabeth II serves that purpose. Um, But at least constitutionally, there's a difference. And so the Japanese government, unlike the British one, is not His Majesty's government, right? The the self-defense forces are not. His Majesty's self-defense forces. It is the peoples. It is the citizens of Japan. You It belongs to the citizens of Japan. Um, in a similar way, the post-war constitution also explicitly states that the, the members of the imperial household cannot have any private property. All property owned by members of the imperial household are properties of the state. And that is very different from the British monarchy, where yeah. both Queen Elizabeth and crown prince charles are some of the largest landlords uh you know in the united kingdom uh and and so and you know that might uh tie into maybe later when we talk about recent kerfuffle surrounding the royal marriage uh you know that's something that is oftentimes not understood which is that uh being a japanese royalty member of the imperial household is is in many ways an extremely confined existence including the fact that for all intents and purposes you don't really have private property. Um and you know a related thing is that there uh, there's also no aristocracy in Japan. There are no dukes, there are no earls, there are no lords and ladies in Japan uh in a way that they still exist in 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 Britain in a very formal way, right? Uh there are no house of lords. Um uh and so what we're talking about when we're talking about the Japanese, you know, imperial household is it's actually a very small group of number of people uh who, you know, uh especially if they are women in the imperial household, uh, when they become married, they they no longer right, by law, they are no longer members of the imperial household and, and just join the the broad swath of commoners that, that surround uh the 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 royal family. And so the fact that there is no aristocracy also means that there are no sort of intermediary group of people between the monarchy uh, and the average citizen right and so that's another key difference i think between the two countries
2: wow yeah that's 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 a that's a huge one and I, i was actually going to bring up the the difference uh between japan's uh kind of modified westminster model since the the emperor does not technically act as the head of state. Um so a, a quick side question because of that, what do you say is kind of the um the the popular opinion of the the imperial household? Or are people uh strongly in support of it or or are people, as you see in some other other countries, you know, kind of there there's more of a divided opinion about its existence. Uh and I, I ask that because there's this interesting, I guess, difference of it not being The head of state role so does that does that make a uh does that cause any difference in opinion
1: yeah i think especially for the emperor and and the empress um you know uh they have been i think throughout much of the post-world war ii era a largely um popular revered figures um you know i think uh, that said, there has always been a, a significant minority, um, especially on the more progressive uh, side of the political spectrum, uh, who either, you know, outright question the, the the validity uh, of the institution, it's, it, uh, you know, especially given the constitutional ambiguity, right, of, of where the sovereignty relies, um, there has always been, you know, questions posed about what is this institution doing in post-war Japan Um, you know uh, the allied occupation working with sort of the the more conservative elites of Japan allowed the institution to survive the second world war uh, because they thought that it was Uh, a useful way of maintaining social and political order in Japan, right? In part to, uh, at that point, avoid a communist revolution. Um, And so there has always been that kind of background of political question and controversy. But I think on a more broad, popular sort of, you know, average citizen level, um, they have, you know, transitioned after world war ii from being an object of kind of a state state mandated reverence uh before world war ii to a kind of more uh gradually transforming into a popular mass oriented monarchy and and that begins you know with uh actually the the previous emperor the emperor heisei now uh marrying uh you know, quote-unquote uh, commoner, Shoda Michiko, uh, in 1950s, right, uh, a daughter of a major uh, industrialist, I guess, uh, and, but that was, you know, that, that marriage was kind of turned into a, uh, a popular Cinderella story, right, uh, and, and, but Emperor Heisei, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, there, I guess, Emperor and Emperor Emeritus, Empress Emeritus, uh, but that couple i think had worked very consciously in the post-war era to uh try to transform the institution that was legitimate in the eyes of the people by uh you know not serving so much as a official head of state but as figures who uh did their best to unite the people to show support for the people and so you know one of the most common images of that couple especially uh during the Heisei era of you know 1990s and the 2000s were you know the couples whenever a natural disaster would strike uh, would go there and talk to the people and kneel with them and hold hold their hands and you know, I think that series of activities and and also actually especially no, notable is that they also traveled worldwide, uh, you know, with a posture of uh you know trying to restore relationships with countries that suffered under Japanese colonialism or wartime atrocities, uh and trying to uh I don't know if they necessarily use this word, but in some sense symbolically atone, right, for some of japan's actions and that uh in a very conscious way i think and so all of those activities especially i think um have helped the the emperor the imperial institution to sort of regain a new kind of respect and popularity uh that i think lasts until today um having said that uh i think the members of the imperial household and especially sort of the people who are not in line uh heir to the throne or or the the monarchs themselves right uh you know the brothers the sisters the children um have also ever since the 19 you know post-world war ii era been an object of public curiosity uh you know gossip journalism um and sensationalism and and so there has also always been to some degree, which I think has really accelerated in the last 10, 20 years, uh, a more aggressive and even hostile uh, reporting on the part of the more tabloidy media uh, that I think does sort of signal some change in the ways in which at least certain members of the imperial household are treated. Uh, And so there is a way in which certain members of the ta- uh you know the the household are targeted by 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 tabloids uh you know the gr- the current empress masako right when she was a crown princess was actually subjected to this for 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 years um but then they can't really attack her now that she's the empress and i think more recently uh the kind of the target of these kind of journalism have shifted towards uh the 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 younger brother of the current emperor prince akishino uh and his family uh whose daughter's wedding had been the most controversial you know event that happened most recently yeah yeah, yeah that's a uh,
0: i was about to say like that's gotten a lot of um a lot of press even overseas i i mean I'm, i know domestically in japan it it's been a big 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 talking point but even you know we pick it up a lot here on the uh us like news uh you know the, the news feeds that we get and i mean all over the world really because it has been kind of a and i guess part partly because mako lives in the u.s now right in new york if i'm not mistaken
1: yeah uh, i think um somewhere in the hell's kitchen yeah. area of Manhattan. yeah
0: so i think that it's gotten a lot more attention here uh because of that um but yeah it's such a because it, it, i do see some parallels there kind of going back to the earlier question nigel had with uh, or not the earlier, but the one we were just talking about. Um, it is kind of a parallel with like British, uh, you know, British monarchies and and are you know, there's a lot of drama that tri- follows them, you know, weddings become a worldwide event. And yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy how some of those parallels yeah. are.
1: Well, and I actually not so crazy, right. Actually, because uh, it's, it happens within the same media ecosystem. And so I think actually the ways in which, the reporting on British monarchy had shifted, uh, especially during and after um, you know, uh the coverage of uh Princess Diana. Um and, and the turn towards a kind of more aggressive, hostile reporting um, you know, by British tabloids, uh have actually both inspired certain Japanese media uh to do the same. But have also, I think, more globally created, you know, uh, a, a consum a consumer base for these kind yeah. of aristocratic or royal gossips. And in the case of Princess Muckle, who you know, or former Princess Muckle now, I guess, who lives now in New York, my understanding is that actually, once they had moved to New York, uh, some of the British tabloid outlets have been at the forefront of kind of, uh, you know, sending paparazzi at them. So there's a kind of an uh, unfortunate, yeah. in some sense confluence of those trends i
2: guess they figure they're Eesh. they're already here for harry and megan they might as well just send them uh,
1: across the country yeah and i mean i'm sure i'm sure it's lucrative right so yeah like
0: you said there's a consumer base that likes to ingest that kind of a uh, gossip <laughs> for lack of a better term um but let's let's take a few steps back and not by a few i mean like centuries uh <laughs> um to, to the back to the very beginning the roots of the imperial family and um you know, there is some, I don't want to say controversy, but more so um, historical accuracy of the first emperor of Japan, uh, Emperor Jimmu, and his ties to the sun goddess Amaterasu uh, dating back to 660 BC. Um, what is, could, could you give us some context in, into why there is some, some who view him as a, as a historical figure, but others view him as a mythological figure?
1: Yeah. Uh, so... Almost all historians uh, believe that he is uh, almost certainly completely mythical figure. Oh, wow. Um, uh, I think part of the part of the at least, you know, the reason why maybe even today some people believe in this myth is that before the Second World War, this was the Orthodox view of history. Right. That the Japanese state uh, propagated, um, you know, even the the Meiji constitution of 1889 uh, proudly talks about a, an unbroken line of emperors being a defining feature of the state um and so for the pre-world war ii japanese state uh you know the the story that starts with amaterasu and Jimmu have been central to an argument of why japan is special right why japanese state uh that is you know ruled over by and reigned over by the emperor uh you know deserves its place right in japan and in the world um you know uh Jimmu is a figure who is uh who who so taking a couple generations back so amaterasu you know was a sun goddess um, that appears in some of the sort of oldest chronicles of japan although by old we're talking about eighth century so seven hundreds um you know centuries after these events had supposedly taken place uh right um and so some of these uh earliest chronicles of japan which were written in chinese by the way um talks about there being this sun goddess amaterasu who was one of the leading kami or deity of of what we would now call shintoism um and you know she apparently sent her heavily grandson a figure named ninigi uh, to create an, a heavenly dynasty uh, on earth. Uh, and Jimmu is uh, the great-grandson of this Ninigi, so several generations apart from Amaterasu, who had supposedly uh, conquered uh, the Yamato region, the present-day uh, Nara Prefecture, uh, and had ascended uh, to the throne as the first emperor, uh, first human emperor. Um, it's almost, you know, the reason why historians say that it's a myth is that, uh, you know, again, uh, you can kind of tell by the fact that these stories start to really come up in the 7th, 8th century in, in these first written chronicles um, is almost certainly a post facto justification of the powers that had emerged in Japan by then uh, in the region of Yamato, Nara, or present-day uh, Kyoto. Um, and you can also tell that by the fact that in the same chronicles, uh, some of the supposed ancestors of key aristocratic families, especially uh, that of Fujiwara, uh, are also depicted as uh, semi deities or minor deities that had accompanied Ni- Ninigi to come to Earth. And so, uh, very conveniently, coincidentally, right? <laughs> right? The entire ruling apparatus uh, has this divine roots, um, and it's really, I think, you know, for historians. It, you don't get until about sixth century 500s uh it's not until then that you finally start to get to a um uh, a sense that there is a kind of monarchy or a central authority in the Yamato region who can be verified historically uh archaeologically and so forth um and even then we don't call that person um you know this the sixth century figure is a Uh, king named Ketai. uh, Historians tend to not call him emperor even though in the kind of official chronicle he has been talked about as emperor because it's not until two centuries after that in the 7th century uh, and I I think towards the end of the 7th century that a Japanese monarch uh, actually a woman an empress named Jito who first used the title of Tenno or the heavenly sovereign uh, emperor Uh, and so you know the the actual history is much more murky, much more gradual uh, than the the story of Jimu and Amaterasu. A little
0: bit of retconning and whatnot, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, absolutely.
2: <laughs> wow, wow, okay. So over the course of Japanese history, there are many distinct periods. Yeah, you mentioned the Nada. There's Heian. Uh, I think even before then, uh, Asuka period. You know and. Um, I, I I don't believe, and please correct me if I'm wrong, during the um like the the tomb periods and the 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 Jomon periods that emperor wasn't around in those periods. That predates the Imperial family. But during, you know, the, the periods that we mentioned, the Asuka, Nara, Heian and and so on and so forth, um, how did the Emperor's power, you know, and dominion fluctuate? Or were, were there certain periods where the Emperor was you know more powerful than others leading up leading all the way you know i guess uh, until you know the the meiji period and the meiji restoration
1: yeah i, I that's a great question and also a very um tricky one right cuz i think it ultimately depends on who or what you mean by the emperor yeah, okay. um you know because if you mean by the emperor an individual right an individual monarch who uh, you know, maybe in the image of the you know absolutist monarch of of Europe, like uh, you know, Louis the Fourteenth, uh, you know, sort of called himself the state and and you know governed accordingly. Um, that's it, what? Uh, let that some yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly right. Um, then maybe the answer is never um, because. You know, I think the the family that it emerged as the imperial family in Yamato, right, was just one of the powerful clans that had emerged in ancient Japan, uh, and had always been surrounded by peers or slightly less powerful aristocratic families. And so, uh, you know, even the emperors who or the monarchs, you know, who emerged in the sixth century. Uh, you know, as a more solidly historical figures, always ruled in collaboration with other leading uh, aristocratic families. So uh, in the 6th and 7th century, you have a very famous aristocratic family called Soga, uh, who is, you know, oftentimes credited with uh, especially promoting Buddhism in Japan, along with uh, an imperial prince, right? Prince Shotoku, who uh, came from whose mother i believe came from the soga clan uh, and so uh, you know was the emperor powerful then well maybe the court was right but that probably whether or not an individual power, uh, emperor was powerful or not um depended uh on the individual and oftentimes uh was med- that power was oftentimes mediated through an ex- exercise uh in collaboration with uh, these powerful aristocratic families, of course, from uh, you know eighth century, ninth century onwards, you have an even more powerful aristocratic family called the Fujiwara's, right? Who uh, strategically married into the imperial line, and so you get a situation. By the time you get to the ninth or tenth or eleventh century, where the reigning emperor is oftentimes the child, and the grandchild, and the great grandchild of of Various fujiwara aristocratic figures uh and so there's a kind of you know i I'll, i i say that to illustrate how the line between the imperial family and leading aristocratic families are really tricky and, and oftentimes not as clear um you also have a situation from twelfth century so from eleven hundreds uh for about a hundred two hundred years where you have the most powerful person in the imperial court, not being the emperor and not necessarily an aristocratic family like Fujiwara, but the previous emperor. So the so-called retired emperor. Um, And so, you know, this happens um, uh, towards the end of the 11th century uh, when a particular emperor decides, you know what, I want to keep on exercising power. I'm going to retire early uh, pass on the throne to my younger child son uh, and exercise power from behind the throne. Uh, and, and so, you know, all of these people, right, whether it's these retired emperors or the Fujiwara's or the Soga's, are part of the imperial court, Um And so if you think about them as a totality, right, these are periods where different factions within the imperial court do wield real power and you know are the most powerful sort of political figures in Japan. Um, That begins to change, of course, with the rise of samurai (laughs) and samurai governments.
0: Yeah, I was actually going to ask about the retired uh, emperors. I hadn't really put that into our questions that we had kind of drafted up, but um, I was going to say it's almost like like you said, they want to kind of fall back behind the scenes and, and they would be kind of the, the pulling the strings, almost the puppeteer, you know, kind of manipulating the government. But when, when they did retire, did they go, I I, see, I took, I did take one pre modern or pre early Japanese history class back in, but it was like a literature class where he did like tales of Heike and, uh, uh, Oh, gosh. Uh, Heike Genji. And then we did Murasaki Shikibu, I think, was another one that we had read a little bit about. And um, there was some mentioning of that. And did they go to, was it another island? Was it Shikoku that they, they relocated to where they had some kind of dominion over the, an area? Or is that like the banished emperors? Uh, maybe I'm confused and stuff. But
1: Yeah, so those are the banished okay, emperors. Okay, all, right, all right. Because usually a retired emperor would, um, you know, move to a different part of Kyoto. Uh, or different, you know, different part of the broader, the larger imperial um, palace complex. Um, I think they're, I don't know if they have completed the move, but the recently retired, or I, I guess the, the formal term that they're using these days is emperor emeritus, which sounds a little bit like Pope emeritus. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, um, but uh, I think they're in the process of setting up a residence, you know, for the emperor somewhere in, in, in downtown Tokyo. Right. So, um, In a similar way in in kyoto there's a kind of different imperial residences that were uh you know one one that was obviously designated for the reigning emperor and then ones for retired emperors you usually ended up with a situation where you had multiple retired emperors uh at times and so they would but they would typically as i understand it be in, in kyoto okay
2: you you mentioned one figure earlier uh was that fujiwara no michinaga or was that someone else Yeah, absolutely. Okay.
1: Fujiwara, I mean Fujiwara no Michinaga is a kind of the Fujiwara, you know, um power holder par excellence, right? I think he yeah. wrote a poem something to the effect of when I look at the world I realize it all belongs to me. Uh, and you know, he he's the one who married his daughters into the imperial line very successfully and um and the Fujiwara's uh you know, I, I believe starting uh including Michinaga uh you know, basically governed right as regents um and in fact many of them were given the formal title of regents um and so uh they ruled on behalf of of the reigning monarch
2: yeah and so let me see here i have a little little sheet here where i jot it down Fujiwara no Michinaga, he was the, through through the marriage connections that you mentioned, right? He was the uncle of two emperors, the grandfather of three emperors, and the father of four empresses, and the regent for his grandson. <laughs> so boss, talk about firmly <laughs> entrenched. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And that's it for part one of our two-part series on the Imperial Family of Japan. Thank you again to Dr. Nagahara for joining us today. And you'll hear the rest of it next week when we release our next episode. If you have read up on it or have some good source material that you've read where you want to share with us, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. We're starting that YouTube stuff up Um, anywhere. Let us know. You can reach us on social media on Twitter at K-R-E-W-E-O-F-J-A-P-A-N. On Instagram at K-R-E-W-E-O-F-J-A-P-A-N-P-O-D-C-S-T. On Facebook, yeah, now, Crew of Japan Podcast. Same thing for YouTube. Or send us an email. That's podcast at gmail.com. Until next time.